was a time this week for sure, and the Lord um, brought clarity and cohesion, and so all that you hear today, as with any Sunday, is only by God's goodness. So with that said, stand at the base of the mountain of Matthew, looking up at this huge book. It all starts this way, Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. And you may in the process go, I didn't know that's how you said that name. I didn't either. Whatever comes out is what it is. That's where we are, okay? Matthew 1.1 begins this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah was the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, cool name, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ." So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, to the Christ, 14 generations. Amen. Oh, I made it. Okay, those were some fun names. Zerubbabel is always my favorite. Don't know why. It just rolls off the tongue. Zerubbabel Lee Massingale. That will be the name of the next one. Boy or girl, doesn't matter. All right. That's right. We are at the beginning, and so I feel like we need to do some essential, like, introductory things for this. So here is the outline for today, just so you know. And always remember this. All of the notes are always fully available. These aren't things that, that we write and then we tuck them away because we want to hold on to all the knowledge. The heart of Cross Life is give the saints what they need so that we may walk in holiness and so here's the outline for today. First, what's a major takeaway from this passage? I'm going to cover that first. Second, who is the author? Who is this Matthew that's writing it? Three, what is a gospel? Not the gospel, a gospel. What is, what is this thing? Fourth, what are some of the major themes that we will see in Matthew? And then fifth, I want us to return to the passage and dwell there for a moment. Are you all good? So that's kind of the, the working outline. So, so here we go. The major takeaway. In case your kid starts crying or we forget to do anything else or, or all of a sudden the lights go out and we got to flee and you have to step out of this moment like, 
two major takeaways from this passage that I wanted to make sure you absolutely get are in verses 1 and 17. Okay? Verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And verse 17. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. The key takeaways that I think we need for this is that Jesus Christ came through a long line of sinners. He came through a long line, 42 generations of sinners, and he came for sinners. That's why at the end of it we go, amen, praise the Lord. But what you have, 14 to 14 to 14, through a long line of sinners, for sinners. That's what we see here. A lot of weird names. But whenever I read this passage nowadays, what I come back to is this. Jesus came through a long line of sinners and he came for that line of sinners and so many more. Like that's what I see is that being held together. The second key takeaway, you will not be able to write all this down, but just hear this. The second key takeaway for you and for me is very similar to the first, but it is, it is simply this. The Savior has come. The Savior has come. Like that's the second big takeaway. But listen to this. All that had been promised from the beginning in Genesis 3, all that had been promised in the Abrahamic covenant, all that had been promised in the Davidic covenant, all that had been promised through Moses and all the prophets, all that had been pictured in the Passover and the festivals, all that had been alluded to in the Old Testament festivals, all that had been desired in the Old Testament prophets, priests, kings, and judges, all of that is now fully, absolutely, completely realized in Jesus Christ. And this passage reminds us, Reminds you and me that the Savior has come, the Messiah has come, the anointed has come, the fullness has come. That's all right there. Like, that's pretty amazing. Like, I mean, I get it. I see Jehotham and Perez and Tamar and Rahab and Re like, I see all that. But y'all, he's come. This shows us he came. The Savior has come, the fulfillment of everything. So if nothing else, I wanted to put that at the very, very beginning in case you don't make it to the end. Who knows why we wouldn't make it, but it was pressing that if nothing else, we need to know he came through a line of sinners, he came for sinners, and he is a Savior and the fulfillment of everything. Okay. Second thing I think that you need to know as we begin to embark on Matthew is who is the author? Who is this Matthew? Who's writing it matters. We can find this in Matthew chapter 9. So flip over to Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. And what we get is this. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew. That's him. That's the author of our, our gospel. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he, Jesus, said to him, Matthew, follow me. And he, Matthew, rose and followed him, Jesus. Verse 10, And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house of Matthew, by the way, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his, to Jesus' disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he, Jesus, heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. 
Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I just want to include that whole little passage right there. Okay, you have a parallel in Luke chapter 5. And so in Luke chapter 5, verse 27 through 32, it says it this way. Now listen very closely. After this, he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi. So he sees Levi sitting at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he, Levi, rose and followed him, Jesus. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table. So in Matthew, he's Matthew. And in Luke, he's Levi. And, the common, and it's, it's a parallel story. And the two common beliefs, I think, are actually pretty understandable. And it's this. His name very likely may have been Matthew Levi. He could have just, he could have had two names, Matthew Levi. Into some he's Matthew and into some he's Levi. I'm going to hold to Matthew since Matthew wrote Matthew and Matthew is the Matthew that's sitting there that he probably prefers the name Matthew. My name is Ricky. It is not Richard. It is not, it is not Rick. Okay. However, I respond to Rick. If Chas is around, do not call me Rick. She does not like the name Rick for me. She says it makes me sound old. And I said, well, Ricky makes me sound young. She goes, I do not like the name Rick. And I said, yes, ma'am. So you can, you can call me Rick. In fact, many of the, the faculty um, know me, some as Ricky and some as Rick. Um, but I think that's kind of what we see here is he, he's Matthew and Levi. They are one in the same. He's probably Matthew Levi, and he gives preference to a name. But since Matthew called himself Matthew, I think that we should pay attention to that. Luke and Matthew probably fought a little bit. Okay, That is not scriptural, um, just so you know. Okay, The other one is this, and I think that this is also something that we can understand. We see a pattern throughout Scripture that upon conversion, some change their name or prefer one name over another. Now, with this Levi and this Matthew, I don't know which one that would be, except that we saw Abram go to Abraham. Simon to Peter, Saul to Paul. He may have been Levi who now prefers Matthew or, or grew in that. Uh, that seems like it fits a scriptural pattern, but I just want to bring those two narratives together because our world says, well, it's two different people. No, it's really not. We see an absolutely understandable reasoning of those two things. So here's the deal. The Matthew who wrote this gospel is the tax collector. He is the disciple. He is someone who walked with Jesus talked with Jesus, did ministry with Jesus, ate with Jesus, and he wrote down his account of Jesus Christ so that we can have these words today. So whenever we're reading Matthew, we're reading someone who actually knows a Savior intimately and spent life with him. I think that that matters. I also want to keep in mind whenever I say that Matthew wrote this, keep in mind, and I would jot it down, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture... All scripture is breathed out by God. And it goes on. It's profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction. But whenever I say Matthew wrote this, who is this author? There's a second author also. All scripture is breathed out by God. Second Peter, verse 1 through 21. Um, if, you, if you have your Bibles, you might want to mark that one also. Second Peter 1.21 says this. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Prophecy there, not just meaning a prophetic saying, but scripture, the word of God. Like no one ever wrote down the word of God by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 
So whenever I say that Matthew wrote the gospel account of Matthew, I take great hope in this because Matthew didn't write it alone. There's two authors here. There is Matthew and there is the Holy Spirit. And these two, spirit and flesh, agree in this testimony. Here is the Savior. And so that's what we're going to be doing at Cross Life. Jesus and Jesus and Jesus and Jesus and Jesus and Jesus over and over and over again, unending. And then whenever we get to the end of the gospel of this particular gospel and we go into a new book, you know we're always going to hold in front of you? Jesus. Whatever book, wherever we are in the Bible, it all still comes back to Jesus. And in this particular gospel, according to Matthew, then we have Matthew and the Holy Spirit as authors of this gospel so that we can know this Jesus. Third, what is a gospel? Okay, I get excited about this one. Okay, and you, you probably won't. It's because I'm an English teacher. Okay, but what is a gospel? Number, I, we already know the one that's like the gospel, right? We say the word gospel a whole lot in churches, so I want to slow down real quick. We say the gospel a whole lot, and sometimes we, we assume that everybody knows what we mean by the gospel. All right? Whenever we say gospel, the word gospel itself means good news, right? That's, that's what it literally breaks down to, and I'm slowing down here on purpose. The gospel is good news. The first sense that we would say it in a church setting or whenever we're talking to one another, or praying with one another, or remember the gospel or cling to the gospel or I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Like whenever we're saying it that way, we're referring to literally the good news of Jesus Christ. Like what is that good news? That you and I were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We had no hope except that we would die and spend eternity apart from God. Like that is all that we had. It's a pretty dismal hope that we had. Therefore, the good news is that Jesus Christ came to save us from all of that. He took us from being children of wrath and made us children of God. He made us who were dead in our trespasses alive with him. The good news only is good news if you really understand the bad news is that you and I were destined for hell by our own choices and the own determination of our heart, and we had absolutely no hope. We gather here today rejoicing and hopeful because we know the good news. We've responded to the good news, but the truth is we grow old to the good news. And so church is like, oh, yeah, I've got to get, gosh, I've got to get there in time. I've got to make sure my clothes are ready. I've got to make sure my, my hair is ready. I've got to make sure these things are all done. I, I've got to make sure, okay, like I know Trent set everything up, but did Trent, did Trent really get them all? Yeah, he did. And I know Chrissy was trying to, like, I'm busy. And, I, and you know what? I'm not resting in this. Everything that ever matters has already been done with Jesus Christ on the cross. We gather here because we get to. Like, we get to do this, y'all. That's the good news. No toiling, no striving, no trying to, like, satisfy the wrath of God on our own as we saw in the law. The one, like, if you read the law, you're sitting there going, I can't do this. Like, I need a Savior. And then we get to Matthew and we go, look, there's the Savior. He's right there. He kept it all from Abraham to David to deportation. And here's Jesus Christ. All of it comes together. Here is our God. That is the gospel. Right? Y'all with me? That's the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news of Jesus Christ that he came and we are forgiven of our sins and we are made forever righteous by believing in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. But now we're reading something that we call the gospel of Matthew and the gospel of Mark and the gospel of Luke and the gospel of John. 
And so I, I think it's helpful to know this because most people don't know it. Nobody ever told me this until I was like in my 30s. But the gospel or like a gospel is actually a genre. So if you like country music, which I only like whenever I'm mowing, just so you know, if you like um, if you like that country, music, then you like that genre of music. If you like um, Lord of the Rings, then you like that genre. You like fantasy. And so a genre is just a type of. OK, so if you like rock music, you like the genre of rock. If you like scary movies, you like the, the horror genre. If you like romance because people fall in love and that's lovely and wonderful, then you like that genre. The Gospels are also a genre. OK, so I want to explain that to you because they kind of emerged on their own, actually. So I'm going to give you a, a brief history lesson and I'm going to just kind of read some facts to you so that you understand and you don't have to write all these down. I want you to sit there and realize, OK, now here's why Matthew and Mark and Luke and John matter. OK, but in the ancient world, there were these things that we now call ancient biographies. At that time, they called them biographies. But now we look back and we say these are ancient biographies because they were in the ancient world. OK, and these were the criteria of ancient biographies. Listen, these works are composed in continuous prose narrative. That means it's left to right, one word after another, sentences, typical writing. Prose narrative usually between 10,000 and 20,000 words, which is the length of a typical scroll of 30 to 35 feet in length. So Matthew, if I'm reading a biography, then I would stand here and you'd go about 35 feet based on the length of this. one. I'd say 30 to 35 feet. And it's just a scroll written left or well, you know, written in their language. And it goes all the way continuously. OK, it goes. It gets more. Watch this. These ancient biographies did not cover a person's whole life in chronological sequence. Whenever you know these things, then they all of it starts to make sense of, well, why did Mark put it here? And why did John put it here? And why did Matthew put it here and Luke put it here? Because according to that genre, that wasn't the most important thing. So keep listening. These ancient biographies, they did not cover a person's whole life in chronological sequence. And they have no psychological analysis of the subject's character. Instead, watch this, they begin with a brief mention of a hero's ancestry, family or city. They tell you about the birth or an occasional anecdote about childhood. But usually the narrative moves rapidly onto the public debut later in life. OK, bear with me just a bit more. The lives of generals and politicians or statesmen or these these leaders, they tend to be more chronologically ordered, depicting their great deeds and virtues, while accounts of philosophers or writers are more anecdotal, arranged topically around collections of material to display their ideas and teachings in one collective clump. Most ancient biographies treat the subject's death in great detail since it often reveals the true character, gives a definitive teaching and includes the greatest deed of the subject. That perfectly, for me, as English teacher, explains the Gospels. Y'all are nowhere near as excited. Okay, so, thank you. <laughs> now, the reason I share that is because some of you, you do like to study and you like to use cross-references and you get to that Matthew and to that Levi part. Or you're like, well, why does Mark is 16 chapters, but then Matthew is, is this many more. And then Luke's over here and they're not all chronological. And sometimes the sayings are here and sometimes they're here. Like in the chronology, the chronology is not always lined up. So with that said, all of this begins to make sense. If you break down those criteria, you understand that the gospel of Matthew, of Mark, of Luke and John, they check all those boxes. 
We get a brief glimpse at childhood or the birth. We go right to the public debut. He's a philosopher or a teacher according to their category. So here's all of his sayings and everything that we need. He is a, a major figure. So here are his, all of his acts and his deeds. Like the Gospels reoriented the ancient biography in that this, they are the ancient biography of Jesus Christ. Like, so you need to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John because they are the ancient biography of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, who came to accomplish salvation for everyone. So why should you read Matthew or Mark or Luke or John? Because this is the biography of Jesus. And you should read all four of them. Because altogether, the, the scholars throughout time have agreed, this is what's called the fourfold gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is told through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four of them are necessary to have a fuller view of Jesus Christ. So you finish Matthew, you don't graduate from Jesus Christ. You need Mark. You don't graduate from Jesus Christ. You need Luke. You don't understand everything that you need to know about Jesus Christ. You need to go to John and you just need to major on Jesus Christ. And as you do that, and as you read them, you need to understand you're not just reading what some guy decided to write down. You're reading something that a disciple of the Lord with and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, co-wrote to tell you about the life and the actions and the teachings and the clinging to of Jesus Christ throughout all time. So the gospel is what we say whenever we refer to the salvation of God for all mankind through Jesus Christ. A gospel, as in mine says right here, the gospel according to Matthew, is also a genre. And that genre means that you're reading a biography of our Savior as he was born, lived, and died. So why do we need to study Matthew? Because we need to know Jesus more. Good? Okay. Fourth, what are the major themes? I've got seven. Seven things that we're going to watch for in Matthew. And you're going to hear them in so many different ways, popping up all the time. Number one, a portrait of Jesus. That's one of the major themes that you're going to see, a portrait of Jesus. You know what I love to do? I love to go. There's a living room in our house. If you, you come into our house and you look right, it's a, an open doorway into our hallway. And there's all these pictures of us, like, and, but mainly of the kids. And I know what my kids look like. I know what they did look like. But I still love, don't you, to just kind of go look at a picture again and just remember that moment? Or like pull out your phone. I love how phones will pop up like this picture six years ago or two years ago. And so that's what we have here. We get a picture and a portrait of Jesus that we need to be reminded of because when we look at the portrait, we remember. What we mean by that is throughout this, we're going to get clear pictures of Jesus as the true Messiah, as the God who is with us, as the Son of God, as the King of Israel, as the Lord of all. We're going to see Him over and over again as He fully is. We get a portrait of Jesus. Number two, we're going to see Jesus as the bridge between the Old and New Testaments. The bridge between the Old and New Testament. So we're going to see that Jesus fulfills the hopes and the promises of the Old Testament through His genealogy, fulfilling prophecies, and the fulfillment of the law. That Jesus is the bridge between the Old and the New Testaments. Number three, the third theme that we're going to see over and over again, salvation spreading to all. We might miss this um, if we're not careful because you and I sit here today and we probably forgot that salvation was for the Jews. It was for them. It wasn't for we Gentiles who sit here today. 
and yet we sit here today brought in to the family of God because in Jesus, he really propelled salvation to all through his death on the cross. So Matthew's gospel traces God's con that continuous work of salvation spreading to the other nations. Him ministering to both Jews and Gentiles. Number four, we're going to see that there's a new community of faith as a result of that. That's a thing that we're going to see is that Jesus is not specifically and only just for the Jews. But he's going to encourage, this is going to encourage us to realize that Jesus' ministry was transcending um, and it's going to encompass the Jews and the Gentiles. It's beyond um, national barriers. It's all in unity to serve Jesus and Messiah. So that is a big theme that we're going to see, which makes the Great Commission have so much greater weight at the end. The Great Commission doesn't hang out there on its own. It's the fulfillment of all of his teaching. Take all of this that you've seen and go. Okay, number five, the church is built and maintained by Jesus's, by Jesus's continuing presence. That's another theme that we're going to see. The church is built and is maintained by Jesus' continuing presence. We're going to see Jesus begin to collect and gather His disciples. We're going to see other disciples begin to follow Him. We're going to see, see Him, or we're going to hear Him say that, that He is establishing His church, which is for all times and includes all who will believe in Him. But we're going to see Him actually not just be the Jesus who says this, He's the Jesus who does this. So the church is built and maintained by Jesus' continuing presence. Number six. Another thing, and there's seven of them. Another thing that we're going to see is a great commission for evangelism and missions. I know it, we've said something similar, but we're going to see that, that, again, the great commission to make disciples of all nations, by the way, is found only in Matthew. That Great Commission is only in Matthew. And Crosslife, please hear me on this. So like, I'm, I'm, that is, we're going to see as Jesus made disciples in his earthly ministry, he commissioned us to follow in his example. Like that's important. You're going to see that. Like he's not the Jesus who just sat back and said, everybody come to me. He's the Jesus who went. And as, as he's going, he is discipling, he's making disciples, he's doing ministry and missions. And then we're also going to see some really healthy things that our Lord did where he pulled back from everybody and retreated into solitude so that he could be with his father alone. But whenever he was fueled by his father, then he would go back out and he would serve. So that one was a great commission for evangelism and missions. Keep in mind that the Jesus that we know is the Jesus who was seated in heaven and had all things, and he condescended to come to us. And number seven, I don't know how to shorten this one, I'm not going to lie. Okay, so here you go. Jesus' five discourses. That just means he's got some lengthy sections where he is teaching. Jesus' five discourses, or you can say major passages if you need to. Jesus' five discourses recorded in Matthew can be viewed as a manual on discipleship. You're probably going to be driving home and say, well, why didn't he just say we study Jesus' words so we can be more obedient? I see that now. You could do that if you want to. You'll find your way. My words are not the definitive words. I'm just trying to give you an idea. Whenever we get to Jesus' major passages, 
and we look at Jesus' teaching, they teach us what it means to be obedient. That's, that's the thrust of it. We can see what obedience to Christ actually looks like from Jesus Christ himself. And it's not always comfortable. And sometimes it's wonderful. It's always wonderful. Sometimes it's just an uncomfortable wonderful. You know what I mean? Conviction, repentance. All right, y'all good on that? So those are, before we dive back into the passage, those were the four big pieces. Number one, what was that major takeaway? Like if nothing else, if the building shut down in this very moment, what did you need to know? That Jesus came through 42 generations of sinners for sinners. You need to know who Matthew is. The guy who's writing this is not writing it on his own, but only as he is moved by the Holy Spirit, which is going to give him the right recollection so that we can trust it. And that he is someone who walked, talked, served, and ate with this Jesus. You need to know that the Gospels, this is actually an ancient biography. We get to study the person of Jesus Christ from someone who is actually there. And then what are the major themes as we get ready to embark on this mountain and journey up through the woods and the trails and not knowing fully where we're going. These themes are the milestones that kind of keep us going as we're winding through the wilderness. And now, number five, what do we do with this passage? I, if we're legit and real... You start Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, the first 17 verses of the New Testament, and it starts in a pretty underwhelming way. Like you start reading and you're like, obviously you can skip the first part of the chapter one. Like, why does that even matter? If you haven't done that, then you are holier than me. I've done that so many times. There's something about genealogies. When we get to them, our eyes begin to glaze over. Y'all, there is a lot of richness here. And we're not even going to touch all the richness of what it is. I want to be mindful that all those other things shared, all that context is just as important to understanding everything that's going to play out, not only in this chapter, but all the other chapters. And so I want to move rather quickly through this passage. But I, what do you do with something like this? I think you do this. Number one, I hope that we get a good understanding here. Chapter one, verse one, right back into the meat of it. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Just going to stop there. That's a big deal. Matthew just did something major by saying the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And all the Jews are going, what? I mean, we're not doing it. We're just like, like the David and Goliath guy. Yeah, him. Okay. Listen, though, because the Jews thought that David was the king. In the garden, in, in Genesis 3.15, that's what's called the Proto-Evangelicum. Like that is where God is talking to the serpent and Adam and Eve, and he's pronouncing his judgment. And in that, he says that there is coming a Savior. Like there is coming, he's saying to Adam and Eve, that they're, and they're, or they're hearing, he's saying to the serpent, that she is going to have an offspring, and this offspring is going to crush your head, and you're going to bruise his heel. The idea is that Satan would be able to hurt the anointed one, but it wouldn't be devastating. But the anointed one who come would actually crush the serpent's head and destroy him. Absolutely. That all started in Genesis. So throughout all those generations, all the way up to David, everybody's in there going, is this the guy? Is this the guy? Is this him? Is this him? Is this him? It's not him. It can't be him. It could be him, but it didn't. Oh, okay, he died. So that's not him. And they're doing this like generation after generation. And David was the king, though. He was the king that they settled on. And so for David to not be the one 
then there had to be another one. But David, man, he was a great exemplar of what a godly king and a man after God's own heart should be. So all of the Jews are looking to David. And then in 2 Samuel, look at 2 Samuel with me. Probably not a frequented book in most Bibles. Um, but it's got this really great passage. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12 through 13. It's one of these, if you don't know to watch for this, then you're going to miss it. But the Jews absolutely knew what this meant. 2 Samuel, chapter 7, verse 12 through 13. I'm just going to say I love it whenever I hear all the pages and I see the pens. When your days... David, when your days are complete and you, David, lie down with your fathers, I, God, will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That's a really key verse in the Old Testament. Okay, so 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13. When your days, David, when, when David's days are complete and you, David, lie down with your fathers, I, God, will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So the temporary that everybody looked at was, oh, David's son is going to build a temple. And they saw this come to fulfillment. But look at that last word forever. Descendant there doesn't just mean like your immediate descendant, that you're going to have someone in your line, David. So your descendant, your son, is going to do these things. We saw like that temporary fulfillment that the temple was built and Solomon and all those things. But God is pointing to a greater descendant. And that's what they're going to start piecing together. As they're reading Matthew, all this is starting to get pieced together. Okay. You don't have to turn there. You can go, go back to Matthew um, chapter 1. But I'm going to take you to, I want you to hear two other passages. Psalm 89 verses 3 and 4 says, I, God, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant that I will establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. And it's an echo of that promise. And Psalm 132.11 says, Of the fruit of your body, I will set upon your throne. Like, so what all this means, and I'm trying to, to just really get to it, that David wasn't the chosen one, nor was Solomon. They weren't. And whenever the Jews are realizing that as they come and as they pass and that they weren't the one, that there had to be, get this, there had to be another descendant. There had to be a greater one that was coming. And therefore, whenever Matthew writes the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, then the Jews are going, this is what we've been waiting for. Like, is this really the one? This is the one that was promised, like we thought it was going to be David, we thought it was going to be his descendant. His, like, this is the descendant. Jesus Christ is in line with David. And while Jesus died in this world by his own choice, he is seated eternally on the throne in a kingdom that lasts forever. The fulfillment of the promise that was made to David. Okay, I'm going to keep going. Okay, and then it says he's the son of Abraham, which is even bigger. It's even more major. If he's in the line of David, then he has to be in the line of Abraham. And in being in that line, it was a 
very big deal. Genesis 22. You got to turn to Genesis 22 to see this promise, this covenant. Don't worry, we are not doing this with every single name. Okay? I know. But we're going to hit these first two. And then we're going to do a walking commentary as though we're, we're like on a nature hike or going through a museum where we're walking along. And I'm like, see that one right there? Yep. Uh-huh. Now over here. Now over here. And we're going to keep moving through them. But you got to get these first two because we don't know how to read them. Genesis 22 verses 16 through 18. God talking to Abraham says, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. See the like great parallels there? Okay. All right. Because you've not withheld your son, Abraham, I, God, will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Look at verse 18. And in your offspring... Like there's one offspring who's coming, right? And then David shows up and they're like, oh, it's, it's David. And then, you know, we just kind of walked through all that. But you go like, here's Jesus Christ. And, and, and the timeline from your angle would be like, here's Jesus Christ in this moment of, uh, of Jesus Christ on the earth. Well, here's David and now here's Abraham. And everybody in the Jewish nation would have highly revered Abraham and rightly they should. It's through Abraham that Israel was born. It's because of Abraham that we sit here today because God covenanted with him and promised him that an offspring would come that would bless the entire world, not just Israel, but that all nations would be blessed. So while Israel did grow as a nation and while they did bless and while some of this had a temporary fulfillment, the full reality is that through Jesus Christ, who came through the line of Abraham, who came through David, all the nations can be blessed. It was a huge deal that Matthew began with the genealogy of Jesus Christ through David, through Abraham. A good summary of the Old Testament. All of that comes down to this. The Old Testament prophecies indicated that the Messiah would be born of a woman in Genesis 3.15. Of the seed of Abraham in Genesis 2.18. Through the tribe of Judah in Genesis 49.10 and of the family of David in 2 Samuel. And there is the fulfillment of all of that. Now let's begin our stroll. Abraham, verse 2, was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. There were 11 other brothers, is what I want you to know. But Christ came through Judah's line. Do you remember the phrase, lion of the tribe of Judah in Revelation 5? Judah is included and not the other 11 because Jesus came through Judah's line. So why didn't he include the other 11? He's only tracking Jesus's descent um, through the, the genealogy. Verse 3, And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zamar by Tamar. By the way, there are four women mentioned in this genealogy, which is not common in the ancient biographies at all. This is why the Gospels are, again, unique. And Perez, the father of Hezron. Now we're going to skip ahead a little bit. Um, to verse 5, and Salmon. Why did I pronounce it Salmon and not Salmon? I just didn't want him to sound like a fish this morning. I don't know what the proper pronunciation is. Just letting you know. Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. Yes, Rahab. Rahab who? The prostitute. She's in the family line. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David the king. Yes, David of David and Goliath. David the psalmist. David the king. That David. To that point, 
also through a line of sinners. It goes on and it says, And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, which is who? Bathsheba. Bathsheba's in the line. David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. This is Bathsheba, with whom David had an adulterous affair. And when she was pregnant, he sent, it says the name Uriah, David sent Uriah to the front line of the battlefield so that he would be killed. And it's all right there in Jesus' genealogy. He did it to cover his sin, which was not covered. Verse 7, and Solomon, which by that I mean it wasn't hidden. And the Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah. And verse 11, I'm just skipping forward a little bit. And Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Like this is the Babylonian exile. Because Israel had continued in its sin and disobedience so much that God allowed them to be destroyed and taken captive to Babylon. That's why they were overtaken. Not because God was unfaithful, but because God is holy. And they weren't living according to His holiness. And because God in His holiness will punish sin, even for the chosen nation, He sent them into exile. Goes into verse 12, And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shatil, and Shatil the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiyad. And I just want to stop there. And you know what all of this does? It firmly cements Jesus historically. He cannot be historically denied. There's a genealogy that can be clearly traced where Jesus historically existed. And just so you know, whenever people in this world are denying that Jesus lives and exists and is a Savior, they can't deny His historical presence. They're just trying to take away everything else they possibly can, but they can no longer deny that He didn't exist. Too many historians at the time were writing about Him. So all of this tells us that Jesus is in history. He had a lineage. The Son of God came, y'all heard this, through a long line of sinners. Why? For sinners. Those who are listed here, y'all are not perfect men and women. Though some of them may have been holier than others at different times. But in this list are adulterers, murderers, liars, prostitutes, unfaithful. And just let that sink in for a moment. You start studying who these people are and let that sink in who they really are. They are adulterers. They are murderers, liars, prostitutes, unfaithful people. God used ordinary sinners for His great work so that no one can either boast in God's work or here's what we do. We also don't get to disqualify ourselves from God's work. Look at that line from which He came. God uses ordinary sinners for His great work so that we can either boast nor disqualify ourselves. He came through a long line of sinners for sinners. It goes on, uh, verse 16, we're almost done. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, is who is called the Christ. Did did y'all catch that very unique wording there? Joseph was not the father of, it doesn't say that. Jacob, the father of Joseph, and then for Joseph it says the husband of Mary. Like the wording changes. Because John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He sent His, God's only begotten Son. Only God begot the Son. Joseph did not. Great mystery. How does that work? I don't know, but we're going to press into it more throughout Matthew. But I just want you to notice that little nuance of language. 
that Joseph was the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, and he is called the Christ. Verse 17, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. Y'all, we often sit here in this context. Y'all just listen to it. We often sit here in this context looking at our imperfections, our weaknesses, our failures, our sins, our brokenness, and we say, God can never use me. Though, look at these people. Though there was so much sin, God's mercy is more. His grace abounds. Where there is sin, His grace abounds even more. And we see that over and over. Though you and I sin, His mercy is even more. You and I sit here because His mercy is more. That's what I see throughout all of this now, is that though there are sinners, it's through these sinners that He will come so that He can save these sinners that provided the lineage that would bring Him here so that He could provide salvation for all people to all nations. Because where sin aboundeth, His grace aboundeth more. His grace is greater than any sin we see in this long line for 42 generations. And any sin that you and I can bring to Him, His grace is that much greater. And it's all right there in that genealogy. What matters at this point today is not what you've done, but it's what you're doing with Christ. That's what I want us to really kind of center in on as, as we get ready to leave. It's not where we went to church. Church membership is going to fluctuate. It's going to go up and it's going to go down. It's not the church that we sit in that saves us. It's not what great deeds we have or have not done that save us. It's not what sins and failures and accomplishments we have. Y'all, it's this. I'm convinced that at the end of the day, it's what do we do with Jesus? We either rest in Him and know Him and are therefore obedient, or we don't. And the fruit of our lives reveals that. And Matthew is going to expose the fruit in our lives, I'm just telling you. In your life, He is either Lord and Savior or He is not. He isn't halfway there. There is no gray in Jesus Christ. He either gets your full of affection and obedience, or He doesn't get all of it, and therefore He doesn't get any of it. He is a jealous God who demands all or nothing. If He is your Lord and Savior, then you and I should be living lives of obedience, though completely imperfect. And what I want to be careful of is somebody here could be thinking with a misunderstanding, Ricky, if, if you're trying to highlight how God used these sinners, then be careful you're not giving people too much a license to actually go and sin. I don't think it's that. I think whenever we understand that through so much sin, His grace is so much greater, then we don't want to go sin. We just want to marvel at the goodness of God's grace on our behalf. So, at any point in all of history, y'all, God could have simply said, you are too hopeless a creation. You're too disobedient. You're too reckless. You don't love me enough. I, he could have just stopped it all all of the line of history, or even in your life. He could have said, you sin, and then you invent new ways to sin. I've called you to holiness, and you can't even do it. I'm done. He could have absolutely done any of that. And you know what? God's love abounds, and His grace abounds, and His promise is true more and more. This shows me that God will come, because He did, right there. And God saves and he shows mercy and grace. Y'all, here is Jesus, and his mercy is more. Through sinners, for sinners, we don't have a license to sin. We have an opportunity to marvel at his grace. I want to take you to one last passage. Turn to Galatians chapter 4, and then we're going to sing in reflection.
Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. I love this verse. Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Paul writes, but when the, look at this, the fullness of time had come. When the fullness of time had come, 42 generations from Abraham to David to Christ. When the fullness of time had come from creation to the fullness of time. Romans says at the right time. Here's what it says. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoptions as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. That's the passage I think of whenever I read Matthew chapter one. At the fullness of time, after all of this lineage, at the right time, God said, and now, and the son steps into human history and changes everything for all of our eternity. That's just amazing. And it's a boring genealogy right there at the beginning. Let's pray. Lord, your word is perfect and true. And Lord, I pray that that is what we do. That we leave here not with a, not with a, man, there's a lot of information there, but Lord, marveling at our God. You are not a God who is like us. You are a God who is completely other, and yet you took on flesh and dwelt amongst us. And the darkness has not overcome you because it cannot overcome you because you radiate for all of eternity. And you have said to us, you are my sons and daughters, and I am yours forever and ever and ever. Lord, thank you. You are good, and you are gracious and kind. Amen.